Thank you for listening to Therapy for Guys. My name is Kike Autry, and I'm a licensed professional counselor in Katy, Texas. In this podcast, I want to explore the issues that men stay silent about, our struggles with anxiety and depression, our relationship issues, obstacles that we face with a diagnosis like ADHD or autism or OCD, and our big existential crises, those related to spirituality and religion, to larger cultural realities, and to the question of the meaning of life. If you enjoy this podcast and you would like to learn more about me, I would encourage you to check out my website. You can find it at kikeautry.com. That's Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y.com. I would love to hear from you. I would love to connect. And as always, remember, continue the conversation. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with Dr. Eric Butler. Eric is a research fellow at the Yale School of Drama. Eric translates literature and scholarship from French, German, and other European languages. He's also the author of The Devil and His Advocates and The Rise of the Vampire. In this episode, we discuss his translation of Byung Chohan's The Burnout Society. This was a real treat for me because ever since Pete Rollins introduced me to Byung Chohan's work, I've been obsessed and I've been trying to do a deep dive into this tremendous philosopher's thought. And so it was amazing to link up with one of his primary English translators. I think in the episode, uh, Dr. Butler says that he has translated about four or five of his books, and uh, that's just fucking incredible. And I was so excited to connect with him. Um, Eric had a really interesting story. Uh, we get into some of his intellectual and philosophical background and even how his experience being an outsider in various different countries and contexts shaped his perspective as a future translator. That was some really interesting stuff. Um, yeah, we get into the nuances of translation and how to interact with the various different words and languages. Uh, we, we go into some reflections on the style and even the format of Byung Chohan's books, especially The Burnout Society. 
Um, we do a kind of a deep dive, an exploration of the word boredom in German. And I'll wait until you get into the episode to to kind of unpack that. We we really go deep into that and, and explore kind of how that fits into Byung-Chul Han's argument. It's really, really helpful. Um, he mentions Heidegger and contemplation and, and how to think about our relationship to the divine or the sacred or whatever we call that, and so much more. I really enjoyed connecting with Dr. Butler. He was so kind and generous with his time. I'm hoping to have him on the podcast again. And um, yeah, this is hopefully one of the first episodes in a series where I'll be interacting with different scholars, exploring the work of Byung Chohan, who's I think becoming one of my favorite contemporary philosophers. Guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope it meant a lot to you. As always, share it with friends, share it with family. And remember, continue the conversation. So Eric, thank you so much for being a guest on my podcast, Therapy for Guys. I know it's a very last minute thing. I, I reached out to you, I think, a couple days ago when I found out that you had translated uh, Byung Cholhan's The Burnout Society from German into English. And I was so excited that you reached back out. And, and I'm just happy to have this conversation with you, first and foremost, to get to know you better and then maybe to hopefully discuss the process of translating that incredible work. Oh, well, the pleasure's all mine. Thanks for uh, getting in touch. Yeah, absolutely. Well, w would you mind just for a brief moment kind of telling the audience a little bit about yourself, you know, what you're up to, a little bit about your scholarship and any other information you'd want to share before we jump into this conversation? Sure. I'll uh, try to make it uh, brief. I've translated probably some two dozen books, uh, both academic titles and uh, works of fiction, um, mainly from uh, French and German, but on occasion from some related languages, too. And uh, along the way, I've uh, written a few books of my own, the most recent of which is called uh, The Devil and His Advocates, which is obviously an examination of uh, a much maligned figure yes. uh, who, I argue, um, you know, really should be given more credit um, than uh, he receives uh, in a monotheistic framework. I mean, if there's only one God, he necessarily trumps everybody else, and there can't be a counter God contriving evil. So I explore in uh, the Bible and then also a range of literary works how the devil, in a very indirect way, um, 
actually uh, supports the uh, famously mysterious ways of the Lord Himself, mm. and so He's not a He's not a not a bad guy entirely. Uh, I love if, that, um, and I and I want to I want to read the book and maybe have you back on because it seems fascinating. Yeah, well, I, I it was a great pleasure to uh, to write, and yeah, um, uh, and uh, people do seem to like it. So uh, by all means, I encourage you to to take a gander. Anyway, that's the, the the sort of quick and dirty version of who I am and what I've been doing. I also wrote a couple books on uh, vampires way back when. Um, they're kind of uh, another sort of embodiment of evil that unravels into something far more complex than you might think. Uh, so I sort of look at uh, European political history and how mm. vampires show up in problem zones where identities are are uh, heavily uh, contested and um, there's no other way of addressing conflicts more directly. So that's that's me, the translator and the author of the the books on the bad guys who uh, maybe aren't always so bad. Yeah, I love that. So so one of the things that I was curious about is when it comes to, you know, your upbringing, growing up, your your childhood, was there a religious kind of background or, or some type of spirituality? It seems like some of your writing hits on some of those themes, but from a unique perspective, I was curious what kind of led to that. Yeah, it all came sort of in a very roundabout manner because um, I would uh, describe my parents as pretty... Uh, free and loose uh, folks of maybe the Unitarian stripe at okay. most. I mean, you know, this one of these reform f religions that has sort of reformed the religion out of the religion. I mean, you know, yeah. no, no real rules or anything more, just a lot of discussion sure. uh, about social issues and problems. So um, I, uh, without an, a religious upbringing, I kind of had to uh, discover a few things for myself but I always did that sort of as an onlooker, you know, I, I didn't really participate in um, anybody else's uh, religion either, but I always tried to take uh, respectful notice, you know, when uh, given the opportunity to um, attend services and, uh, and, and listen to uh, people who were um, discussing things within this framework. So sure. it's, um, <clears throat> It's it's a it's a it's a secondary, but it's 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 not something innate and inborn. It's something acquired after the fact and consciously constructed. Okay, got you. What did what did you end up focusing on, like in in your undergraduate and graduate studies? What was it connected to this? Well, no. So I um I majored in literature, and uh, uh, one of the most um, sort of. Uh, formative experiences I had was actually studying ancient Greek mm. um, and Latin. And um, in uh, the course of that, I learned not only about pagan antiquity, but also the um, shift from a pagan world to a uh, Judeo-Christian one. Okay. Or not always a shift, they existed alongside each other, and then, you know, the, the relative predominance uh, changed. Um and uh, at at one point, uh, one of the best courses I took involved reading Biblical Apocrypha, so the third book of the Maccabees, which isn't even in the Hebrew Bible, much less the Christian one, um, but at the time uh, was a holy text, you know, read by um, 
religious communities. And even though it was a a Jewish text, it was written in Greek and had all of these references to Greek culture. And I found this sort of confusion, which I mean in the best possible way, maybe this commingling or interpenetration of different cultures together to be something really fascinating. And it's sort of been following that type of, uh, the, the type of questions that I first encountered in that context that have sort of that following those questions has shaped my projects ever since i'd say okay got you wow so is is that kind of the the beginnings of your interest in in doing you know translation work i I was hoping we could get into that how that started yeah you know it really is insofar as there's no way to study I mean, basically what you're doing when you're studying ancient languages is you're spending a lot of time with a dictionary and a grammar <laughs> <Yeah>. translating. <laughs> um, I suppose I developed a set of uh, habits there and probably uh, masochistic, uh, you know, predilections um, that uh, made me a good candidate for, you know, becoming a translator later in life because it is kind of this weird, solitary mildly um you know self-abusive kind of activity i mean sure. n- um, <laughs> but um that that's that is how it started i i guess um but i had also um earlier in life uh had um some preparation for all of this because um and i maybe should have mentioned this at the outset I uh, had parents who were in the military and was and lived in Germany for three years. Oh, got you. Um, in, in junior high school and high school, so from the eighth through tenth grades. And during that period, I actually attended German schools, mm. which really, you know, um, uh, well, either warped my perspective or um, you know uh, made me the unique and wonderful person that I am today. That's what I'm going with. Because, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Okay, so you 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 were in in master you 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 were in that culture, and so that's definitely a part of your story. I love that. Oh yeah, and also just this weird sense of of being you know, of of just one day not being able to communicate with anyone at all. Mm. Um, you know, because and also in, at a period in early adolescence. I mean, by the time you're you know thirteen or fourteen. You know, you've you've started to get your bearings, maybe, however poorly, in your own language sure. and uh, culture. But then to be uprooted and put somewhere else uh, can be fairly uh, traumatic, or at least it was in my case. But I mean, you know, it's like working out or something. You know, you when you when you tear tissue, it grows back stronger, mm. provided that you don't really yourself too badly sure. and so I, I sort of think of it in, in in those terms so you know it took me you know half a year or so before I was um, communicating very effectively with anyone at all but then uh, you know in about a half a year I, I was uh, I was getting along fine and after and from that point on everything uh, was more detail oriented. Mm. So, but it's but still this 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 experience of of being thrust back into infancy. Yeah, uh, that's a good way to put at, it. At 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 thirteen is uh, was profoundly disorienting, and um, and that uh, obviously uh, that whole experience um, was 
beneficial in the end for uh, becoming a translator. Yeah. Oh, I can only imagine. So, so you're there in Germany for just a few years, and then you come back to the states, or, or did exactly from for, for three years uh, in in Germany, and then uh, back to the United States, but back to a new part of the United States, which is another story. Okay. You know, I I, I left from Indiana, then was in Germany, and returned to uh, El Paso, Texas. So, oh man! You know these. It's the the change was constant. Okay, what what yeah, was I in, mean, the, in, El, in El Paso? I'm oh, sorry. Oh, I was just going to ask. Yeah, what was in El Paso? Well, so again, it's just a military connection. Okay. There's a, there's a large element of chance in all of this, but El Paso is a fascinating place. Not that I necessarily really uh, um, ex- appreciated this at the time, but since it is right there on the border, I mean, it is right where Texas ends and New Mexico starts, and it's also where Mexico Mexico starts. Right. Um, it's a border town. So, uh, and you can literally walk over the bridge, you know, into another city and into mm. another country. Um. And uh, so, again, this this experience of, of being sort of an outsider a couple times over um, was uh, very um, stimulating, for want of a better word. I'm sure I wouldn't have used uh, that term back then. I probably right. would have said, like, agonizing. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe, um, uh, anyway, traumatic or something. But, uh, sure. but uh but it was really stimulating um, to to be, uh, yeah, as I said, an outsider a couple times over, repeatedly. Right. And th- that that's something that a translator winds up being, you know, when they sit down to translate something too. You're an outsider. It's somebody else's book. And you're just kind of, you know, you've been given the keys to root around in it maybe, but it doesn't belong to you. And uh, you, you have, there's this um, constant interplay between respecting the original and what's there and then taking the liberties you have to to make it your own or to turn it into something that is um will be understandable to people in another language oh man that's that's such a great point i hadn't thought about that but you are kind of navigating a lot of different realities and i can only imagine that you're also entering a situation where there's going to be a bunch of people that are not very happy with some of the decisions that you make. <laughs> oh yeah, like in translation. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. No. Um. Yes, that is almost guaranteed. It's just that you. It's never guaranteed where it's going to come from. Okay. Um. Because you know, sometimes, very often, you'll have authors who, you know, rightly feel that uh, you know, the book is theirs, but they don't, and they might. They'll often know English. This is something I've encountered a lot with people from Germany. Okay, they'll, they'll know English well, but they won't have any kind of native sense of style. Mm. So therefore, they are wanting that everything be translated like it is written by them in the original. Oh. So when you, where you so like with that that atrocious sentence I just produced, sure, you know, would be a faithful translation of something from German, which uses a lot more of these passive constructs instructions and has mm. these long never-ending sentences and so on and so forth but yeah in english in contrast you want to be direct you want to you know have active verbs you want to put the action front and center and so um you know that isn't something that is necessarily really um people aren't even necessarily aware of that right 
Uh, and, and so they can just be like, what, what's happened to my book? It's been turned into something totally <laughs> yeah, different. You've taken my baby and you've changed it. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that kind of thing can, can happen, uh, uh, for example, but, um, any number of, of, of other things as well, because ultimately, you know, it's not just you and, uh, the author, there's this whole publishing network in between and editors can be both, you know, a godsend and a real plague depending on um, oh. you know what they think is right i've had i've had really great experiences with with people who who really understand um their role very well and then some not so great experiences when you know they've they've kind of uh seen it as incumbent on them to uh, to step in and steer oh gotcha. and steer a translation you know. I, I wondered what some of the negative experiences would look like, them maybe overstepping their bounds or taking too much control over where it should go. Yeah, it's just, it's just uh, you know, for example, um, if uh, I, I've had, so one situation that's fairly common is if you do a translation that is a strong translation, that is to say, it doesn't just reproduce the syntax of the original. It's something that makes it sound like it's been written in English. So it's sure. it's a forceful translation in that sense. And um, and the author say has some reservations about it for the aforementioned readers reasons. If if the editor in a situation like that doesn't at least explain your rationale or or the, the reasons why somebody might. Um, take the uh, the strong uh, assertive approach to translation there you can ins there instead of uh, sort of building a bridge um, they can they can uh, work to the further detriment of already bad communication got you so yeah yeah wow man that that's that seems anyway. just like a lot to navigate. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you know, I'm sure. It's, I'm sure it's you know it's probably like everything that you hear. Or, you know, when whenever people are on these uh, entertainment shows and they're talking about music or movies or something and all the things that can go wrong there. Oh yeah, this is like a much less glamorous version of that. Okay, <laughs> a lot of moving parts. You know, the studio steps in and it's like we're not going to have this ending or you know, we're not going to have this person starring. I like that a, a lot less glamorous version of that. So how, how do you end up, so I mean, it's great that you kind of shared some of the pieces growing up that kind of contributed to you becoming a translator. What, what, what was it like, or what was the story behind, you know, actually d doing it professionally uh, in some ways for, for a living? How, how did that happen? Well, it, it happened. Um, I started, I, I was formerly uh, in an academic position, okay. but it was becoming you know, at a university as a professor, but it was becoming more and more difficult to do the kind of thing that I was interested in. And that's a whole different story. But I mean, yeah, you can open up any trade journal in the academic world, and there will be all of these horror stories about about the kind of stuff happening in universities these days. I have, um, just in terms of freedom of speech issues and um, uh helicopter parenting and um students with this kind of morbid sensitivity to like really anything that might you know take them out of their comfort zone and so on and can, so I, can i make a, a anyway. quick connection over there just uh sure. there, there, there's this show that my wife and i are watching um it's a it's actually a therapy show it's it's brand new on um apple tv plus 
And uh, it's called Shrinking. And one of the characters, actually Harrison Ford, who's 80 now, and and he is speaking to one of his colleagues who wants to go into academia as a professor. And he says, you don't want to do that. You know, academia is like, and I think he's referring to Dante's seven layers of hell. He's like, there, it's at the very bottom. <laughs> Why would you ever want to yeah, do that? Yeah, it really... <laughs> I'll uh, I'll keep an eye peeled for that. Um, although, yeah, intuitively that makes sense, and I think that just about anybody in the profession, uh, well, past or present, will will agree with that um, assessment. Um, so there I was, and I, uh, but there I well there I was, and I was looking for some kind of way out, but I was also looking to tra- to um, get to, to, to invigorate my own scholarship with the most interesting material I could find. Okay. And uh, in that context, I found um, a book by a Yiddish author um, that I translated. And I translated it not because I have any great background in, in Yiddish or, or, um, or any of the, any particular qualifications uh, other than knowing the Hebrew alphabet and some Slavic languages and, sure. German, but I just just I was fascinated by this book, and nobody had translated it before, so I figured it might as well be me. Mm. And that was um, actually my first uh, step into the world of professional translating, which was really probably the most extreme thing I could have done. Not that I realized it at the time, sure. because instead of taking something that was short, manageable, and in a language I knew, I took something that was long, extremely controversial. <laughs> And uh, in a language that I could read well, but but was by no means an expert in. Got you. Uh, um, so, but that said, once I'd actually done this whole book in Yiddish and it was translated and, and it was published and it got good reviews and so forth. I mean, from that point on, everything else has been relatively easy. Okay. Uh, <laughs> because that that was really the trial by fire. I was going to say that seems to be kind of a theme in your life, going through these difficult situations and circumstances, but somehow coming out stronger and growing through them. Well, yeah, no, you're the therapist. <laughs> you, 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 I, what, you, what you don't see is how it utterly saps and undermines my uh, sense of uh, of uh, well-being internally and how, in fact, I'm uh, uh, a far more damaged person than I might uh, seem to be uh, mm. on the uh, – on the outside, but no, just a bad joke. I, I uh, always always strengthened by adversity. Yeah, no, I, I one of my quotes that you can't see. Uh, if I could move my computer, I'd show you. But on my wall is uh, Marcus Aurelius's "The Obstacle Is the Way." I've, I've always kind of come back to that as as something that's in line with what we've been talking about, going through the difficulties and kind of coming out stronger. Well, yeah, there, there's certainly that's that's yeah that that is certainly something that I I, I never chose to do at I, at first, um, but then I and I, I never chose to do. I, I don't have really have the, the feeling that I um it, it seems that it's something that's happened sort of unconsciously ever since. Sure, <laughs> you know, yeah. first getting stuck in the German school, but then everything afterwards. It's like I didn't know that uh, I was just. And intuitively, I didn't go and say, like, I want the hardest thing to translate to <laughs> prove myself. In. Sure, sure. But unconsciously, I sort of went in that direction. Yeah. Now, 
can, can you speak to with all the things that you've translated how after after that one you just talked about how you end up choosing which book you're going to translate i mean do, do you get a lot of say in that or or does a, a publisher kind of come to you? I'm I'm just curious, kind of how it works. Yeah, it's it. I've I've had experience um, sort of both ways. Okay. Uh, by and large, I would say that the uh, trans the uh, publisher, sorry, comes to you or okay. me in this case. Um, but through uh, some of the. Uh, uh, translations that I've done for uh, I've I have come into contact with other people in presses to whom I could propose projects on my own. So um, initially, it was uh, presses coming to me and saying, "Oh, you know, we have this book," and and it's, it's, this is also this is one of these things I was talking about uh, earlier when I was talking about the sort of. Uh, diminishing returns of the academic world yes. it's all much more business-like than you might expect it's like okay. well we have options on this book and we need it translated by x date you know because it's going to have a print run of whatever and we have the budget of x and you know it's this is going to be supported by a grant from y i mean mm. it's it's gone are the days when you know i don't know a bunch of intellectual types sat around a table and read through manuscripts you know, and, and on that basis decided, you know, what they happen to like and would share with the world. Gotcha. This is all much more sort of a, a world of um, of committee work and bureaucracy. But um, the, the for the most part, I, um, yeah, I w I've been approached by presses, um, but then uh, through, um, through some of the contacts I've made, as I said, I've uh, been able to um, propose projects and that that's how I wound up doing all of the uh, titles um, if you look on my website for for uh, Wakefield Press okay which those are literary translations and those are uh, by and large projects that are much closer to my heart or on average they will be much closer to sort of my heart than uh, a lot of the academic titles which can be which can range from stuff that I really, really like to some other titles that are a bit more mercenary. Okay. You know, it's just like, well, you know, I mean, they say they need it. I need to make some money. You've got so, to pay uh, the bills, right? I've got to pay the bills. So here's a book on, you know, whatever. And it's not necessarily something that I'm that drawn to. Sure, sure. Now, I, I, I know in, in initially connecting with you, I, I found out about you because I had kind of finished this one book by Byung Chohan. I hope I'm saying his name right. I always feel like I'm butchering it, but um, I don't know if you know how to pronounce it correctly. Well, it's all, you know, you know actually, you want somebody who has, he actually probably um, would tell much the same story about being an outsider a few times over because mm. he's from Korea and writes in German. Um, yeah, so, I read no, that. No, that's 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 an even more radical jump than mm. uh, you know, North America to Europe. But anyway, uh, but but as for the proper pronunciation and everything, I um, I don't know that I uh, have, can speak with any authority on that. Um, okay, I just say uh, in 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 Germany at least that people just say Byungchul Han. Uh, okay, and Byungchul Han. Okay. But uh, I, I, had, I that, hadn't heard that, that yet, but I, but I, that sounds right, <laughs> Byung-Chul Han. <laughs> so um, it, how did you how did you get linked up with? 
I don't know if you got a chance to talk to him or how that worked. I'm, I'm just curious if you could kind of whatever you're able to share, kind of talk about how that started and, and you know, the whole process of translating the Burnout Society, because it's just a really important book to me. Yeah, well, I haven't actually had that much contact uh, with the author himself. I've just exchanged a few emails. I mean, okay. as you know, as anyone who reads his books will quickly gather, he's somewhat reclusive and uh, has a very sort of uh, skeptical view of yes. the world of you know technology and yes. mass communication and everything being available at once. He's really. Uh, so uh, hands off in that in that regard. Um, but I came in, into contact with his work. I hadn't known it previously, but one of the uh, people whose works I had who who by well one one person uh, I translated a book by um, drew him to my attention, mm. and as a sort of uh, rise in, not star in Germany, but as as somebody who was you know, starting to get a, a lot of uh, attention, sure. um, both by uh, both within the academic world and more broadly. And so um, at that time, thanks to uh, an editor at Stanford University Press, this uh, individual with whom I had spoken, who had some weight to throw around since he was a, you know, big muckety muck yeah. uh, in the in the academic world. Uh, he um Thanks to uh, his uh, intervention, uh, the Stanford University Press got interested in translating a couple things by Byung-Chul Han, and I was just uh, either, uh, well, no, nobody ever told me if like they were dead set on having me as the best guy for the job or if I just happened to be around. Okay. But, um, but, but that's how uh, I wound up um with the uh with the job and i mean i you know I, I i do think that it's because i had done a good job with um this uh other person's book that uh you know uh i was um i was uh first in line for the um for the new project too got you but uh that's that's kind of how it first materialized okay so did, did you have before that much of an interest in philosophy or, or even just some of the ideas that that Chohan gets into in the book? Yeah, I well, I, I, I definitely I've always um, had had a great interest in philosophy, in okay. fact. So um, in a uh, and, you know, I also. Um, you know, I, I also besides my undergraduate degree, I have a um, degree, in, a PhD in comparative literature. Oh wow! Which at least, at least, in its day, well, we're recently talking about the '90s here. Okay. Uh, but uh, basically, from the '70s to the '90s, it had the reputation for being a sort of philosophical branch of literary study. Oh, okay. Um, that just just within the um, sort of within the, the 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 universe that 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 emerged within the american institutions of higher learning so i at any rate had um read a lot of philosophy uh in a sort of semi-professional capacity you know while while pursuing this degree sure. so um it was a really good fit in that regard plus i have to say i one thing that I, drew me to um the books right away was um the it's just how 
unusually direct they were for for books of philosophy mm. instead of you know this sort of pondering imponderables and these interminable sentences um which you know which are familiar in in philosophy everywhere but especially in german philosophy i mean there they can you can have you know paragraphs that go on for oh yeah pages um but i really loved jung chul han's um directness and uh and sort of unconventional um approach to the subject matter sure and that was a that was a big draw as well sure oh man okay so i i definitely wanted to ask some questions about that kind of the style or the form but before that, I'm just curious, going back to your, your PhD program, who were some of the thinkers or some of the philosophers that y'all were, you know, engaging with uh, in the in the 90s? Oh, uh, well, there were all of the all of the uh, all of the heroes of yesteryear. I don't know if they they still are today, because, um, again, the whole uh, nature of the academic enterprise seems to be changing. But. Back then, uh, you know, the uh, the big names were uh, they were mainly French, although the, although 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 all the French uh, authors were heavily indebted to German predecessors. But um, uh, Roland Barthes, hmm. Michel Foucault, uh, Jacques Derrida, Jacques Lacan. Um, my personal favorite um, was somebody who wasn't discussed that much because he's such an odd man out. But uh, Rene Girard, oh, I don't know. Yeah. If you've heard of it. I'm, I'm he, actually after this, I'm, I'm interviewing someone who's written kind of a theology book. But the first section of the book is engaging some of his mimetic theory. Um, but please, can, can you can you speak oh, to what drew you to Girard and his thinking? Well, what what I liked most about him is how he managed to combine things that seem to be worlds apart. Mm. I mean, here's somebody who uh, would uh, who would talk about mimetic theory. So that is how uh, you know plants, animals, and people copy each other, right? Basically, so he he would be the, he'd he'd uh, go from discussing primate research or something that that happens, <laughs> you know, in a in a very specific corner of the world that seems miles away from theology. Mm. And then uh, within a few breaths, he'd managed to relate this to um, a certain uh, interpretation of parts of the Bible. Mm. Um, and that breadth, I think, more than anything, really, uh, that breadth of vision really amazed me um, and uh, impressed me. And specifically, his his idea of of how mimetic conflict is resolved through violence mm. uh that also that is something that uh was a really important idea when i was working on um working on uh the vampire material okay. because because th what you have there is uh, a situation where the entire social body is in a in a diseased state mm. nobody knows who pe anybody else is and what they are the dead aren't staying dead the uh the people who should um be familiar are acting like foreigners mm. that kind of thing so there's this mimetic crisis girard would say that then magically gets resolved when everybody drops when everybody bands together and ritually exterminates a supposed 
the supposed source of all the trouble, mm. which is this this you know body that supposedly has been getting up from the grave and and going around and and bothering people. Right. Oh, that's so um, good. So anyway, uh, that. <clears throat> Lots of guys, but Girard chief among them, and um, and uh, I'm sure your next guest will have a lot more uh, to say about it. And uh, he's he's really a very interesting, um, a very interesting thinker, I think. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm just curious. Do, do do you feel like Girard is someone that could speak to even some of the things that we struggle with in our contemporary culture? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think far more than a lot of his contemporaries. And he also, unlike a lot of, uh, I mean, he also wound up spending uh, most of his life in the United States. Okay. Was he at Stanford? Yeah, he wound okay. up at at Stanford. So uh, he he was, and he, so again, he, and so he, here's, he's another perfect example of the outsider as insider or, the, or, or somebody who has an outsider perspective because he, he was an accredited respected you know member of his field in the american uh academic system but he really was uh but you know he, he he came from abroad and he to the end of his life he had you know this very foreign sensibility mm. which however he brought to bear on 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 things here in in new and uh exciting ways so um i, I know that at the uh towards the end of his um life he started talking uh a bit more or maybe th this is something that actually had begun earlier but i i became aware of of him talking about sort of behavioral issues stuff mm -hmm. like anorexia and all of these things that um uh really are viewed as belonging to the sort of realm of, of psychology and the behavioral sciences yes. he started talking about these things in terms of his larger mimetic theory so um anyway Long story short, I'm sure he's got something to say about uh, probably every aspect of, of the world we live in. OK. Right now. Oh, that's great. That's great. OK. Oh, man, I'm, I'm glad we took that detour. So that's that's great. Uh, so but going back to, to Chohan, you know, in terms of the form of that book or, or just his style, could you say any more about it? And and maybe the, the little note I'll, I'll make is I've, I've heard people connect it maybe even to his zen buddhism there, there's like this poetic aspect to it or sometimes it seems more like like a, a work of art than a work of philosophy i i wonder if you could tease some of that out well i i wonder if i can too i mean because that actually hadn't occurred to me i mean I, I i do agree it makes intuitive sense you know when to hear you say it i i i um i understand immediately what you mean but i had always thought of him more uh, in terms of Western medieval philosophical tradition. Okay. So like, you know, Aquinas or somebody like that, somebody who's going to put out a thesis and then debate it point for point. Mm. You know, he's he has this very methodical, so that doesn't preclude a spiritual dimension, right? okay. it doesn't preclude uh, artistry in what he's doing. But this, uh, there is something sort of scholastic in, in again, in the medieval sense of the sure. word were uh, in the way that he just kind of hammers things out in a very um, business-like manner, as it were. Business sounds unfortunate because that's one of the things that he tends not to like. <laughs> but matter of fact, I guess. Sure, sure. He, he hammers things out in a, in a matter of fact uh, a manner. Um, 
And that's also probably got something to do with the fact that German isn't his native language at all. I mean, I know from my own experience that when you're writing in a foreign tongue, you really there's there's no way that you can BS. There's oh, there's no so way true. that you can and apart and even not BS. There's also no way that you can kind of achieve some of the the stylistic you know kind of polish sure. that that you can in your native tongue. So um, all of this. Uh, has led him, I think, to make a very sort of distilled, uh, yeah, very distilled and concentrated uh, form of writing. Because his books are also very short. Yeah, and, I wondered about and, that. Do, 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 do you have a thought as to as to why they're? Because he seems because he's written so much, and and it's not that he has uh, a lack of words or, or insight, but I wonder if that's purposeful. How they're like these longer essays almost. Yeah, it's it's got to be. There is there is one German uh, precedent for that, and that's it's one that I know is definitely important for him, and that's Nietzsche, okay, who also wrote lots of short books with, with in a very punchy, uh, epigrammatic style. He and uh, one of the phrases he used to describe that was the telegram style. Okay, it's just like bulletins from the front or something. Yeah. Um, so there's probably a combination of uh, his his background in a, a, a um, in a larger philosophical tradition that I do think goes back to the Middle Ages with okay. this kind of scholastic debate. The, um, the fact that he uh, is uh, a foreigner writing in a foreign language, and then um, some of the uh, more modern parts of his philosophical diet like Nietzsche, I think all of that contributes to um, to this very clipped and direct sort of terse mode of discourse. Okay. Oh, that's super insightful. I'm so grateful that you're framing it that way. That really helps me. Um, now, in terms of the actual book, when you were translating it and just, I'm assuming, just kind of internalizing it and digesting it, what, what was what, what were some of the ideas or some of the things in there that, that just struck you, that got you thinking maybe have stayed with you what, what, what was it a, a meaningful book for you oh yeah absolutely i mean he also tends to circle around the same themes over and over again so i hope that i actually do justice to the to the work that that you have in mind and i'm not running it together with because i've translated probably five books of his oh i didn't realize uh, that you know. okay yeah um at any rate that's that's fucking awesome man <laughs> Well, it's uh, again. They're they're mercifully short, and again, he he does he does sort of have his. Uh, well, I mean, I don't mean this disparagingly, but you know, he does have his hobby horses. Things oh like yeah, he returns no, 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 sure. Um, but one of the, the the things that struck with me that stuck with me most is, of course, this whole idea of um, uh, of an achievement society yes. and. and and because that seems very American in particular, very Protestant, mm. very capitalist. I mean, all of these things oh, yeah. that um, and that are connected to other things, but that he seems to really just have this deep-seated cultural sort of and intellectual aversion to sure um, this idea of, of always being on. I mean, and uh, of of always trying to. Uh, outdo oneself and, and and also the kind of interior life that that um that that constructs because you're not just in you're 
in an achievement society, you're not just in competition with everybody else who's out to get as much as they can too. You're actually constantly, you're really most importantly in competition with yourself. Yes. I mean, and, 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 or a sort of phantom version of yourself mm. that you can never quite um, uh, live up to, sure. or then that can, can turn against you and kind of become a persecutor. So that um, idea was one that um, really uh, stuck with me a lot. Um, but there's others too. Yeah. And, you know, I think about, you know, I guess the way you translated it, that, that auto exploitation and, and, and he talks about in, a, in an achievement society, you know, the whole master slave dialectic becomes this thing where you yourself are both master and slave and you're working against yourself. I, I just thought even from a therapeutic background, that's super insightful and, and helpful and very telling of where we're at in our society. Yeah, yeah. No, it's I mean, the. Uh one of the neat things about his books is that you can read them on their own terms and for their sort of philosophical depth. And you can also turn on the TV and sort of see, see <laughs> yeah. uh, confirmation of exactly what he's talking about. They I mean, true. That's, that's such a good point. I couldn't agree more. I mean, yeah. Yeah. N not that the world really needs anybody to watch more of the Kardashians or oh, anything. Oh, geez, please. No, <laughs> but, but that, that's kind of is an illustration of, absolutely of, this, of, of, of constantly trying to mine, mine a paradoxically empty self. Yes. You know, in, in, uh, in perpetuity. Um, anyway. So I want to know from you what you think about his whole notion of, in a in an in this achievement society, an age of uh, hyper attention, almost the the return back to a profound boredom. Because I I just think that's so counterintuitive. You know, I, I've I've joked on the podcast. You know, gosh, I can so fall into the achievement mindset. I hate being bored, but I know that it's something I need to kind of like enter into to linger. As he says, what 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 do you think about this concept of profound boredom? Well, I too find it counterintuitive. I mean, as a North American, you know, and and it's and 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 difficult, but at, at the same time, very appealing. Yes, um, because I know what he's talking about, even if I'm not really on, on, by nature on that wavelength much myself. Uh, this idea of actually just allowing things to materialize and take their own time mm. and uh this sort of self-surrender that that implies seems very important because if you're constantly engaged in auto exploitation as he puts it i mean it doesn't take long for you to run out of material i mean and 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 there you are um spinning all the wheels but really producing nothing but producing nothing for all intents and purposes. Right. right. So this, this taking time and uh, I, I'd have to reread it, but I think he's, he's, he's got, he, one thing that he does very well, and this is a feature of, of uh, German language philosophy okay. um, in general, but one thing he does a really good job at is sort of exploring the resonance of different words because mm. German German has a sort of shortage of abstract words. Okay, it, it's always 
a same the same word that is used for something very concrete will be used for something more uh, rarefied and abstract. So he likes to engage in these kind of etymological games where he talks about um, where he talks about the different components that make up words and to get in which will turn so the word for boredom for example is literally it breaks into a long while so man so and then if you start looking at it as a long while it's not boredom at all this there are some things that we want to last forever you know now now they aren't referred to as a long while in german either but by 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 going just by by peeling back one layer of, Mm. of the language He'll find a totally different set of resonances in in a word, and um, and so and that actually makes the book itself an illustration of what he's talking about because you this these aren't books that you you pick up and read quickly the way you would read uh, you know an instruction manual right it's, you're supposed to linger and 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 like you know maybe just read a page at a time and if it's doing its job it will you know make you think yes. And, and you'll have to put it down mm. and and you'll you'll have to have this you'll have to take a long while to to get through just a 50 page book because um because uh something something more profound than boredom is happening that is mm. like boredom but you know but 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 not it's 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 the it's a totally different time with a totally different kind of complexion wow oh it's so good do do you think that that creativity emerges out of that long while that boredom um i think it you know i certainly would couldn't speak i i think there's there's creativity of all kinds different kinds for and it works different ways for different people but um but i think certainly some of the most profound work has come from people uh who lose themselves in a situation and then find new aspects of reality um, precisely because they're they, they they're stuck looking at something for such a, a long period of time mm. i mean it's it's if you look at a really at a really good even like nature photography or something sure it's always about capturing some it's it's not about what happens fast it's about stopping and lingering and seeing how a bug has actually crawled a tiny little creature has crawled, you know, up a flower stem or something. Mm. And at a certain hour of the day, the light just catches it in a certain way so that it's, it has this diaphanous wing and that's like a stained glass window or something like sure. that. I mean, so there, I, I, I do think that um, one of the wellsprings for, for, um, for, uh, creativity yeah definitely has to be at least from at least from shuffling the sense of time a lot it might it doesn't always have to become a long while maybe it can be a short while it can become compressed and too but it 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 has to it has to become something plastic that's molded in different ways okay yeah that's that's well said so eric uh one of the things that i feel like chohan laments in the book is that in the achievement society we've kind of reduced human existence to, I think he calls it health culture or just kind of bare life, the the vital functions of, of our existence. And we don't pursue like the good life. 
And and I'm just curious if you could speak to that. I mean, your own personal thoughts or, or what you think he would articulate in terms of what the good life is and how we should think about that. Well, I think um, just uh, I hope I'm answering this. Um, there's there's not just the good life. There's also the contemplative life. There's the active life. There's all kinds of life that isn't bare life. Okay. So I, I think, um, you know, famously people uh, and philosophers, you know, want the good life, both in a moral sense and in an aesthetic one. But um, there's a value that I think um, Byung-Chul Han affirms of just any kind of life that isn't just a matter of um, of uh, always being plugged in and turned on and in overdrive, um, and that's <clears throat> I don't know if 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 he would say that that's the good life per se, um, but it is. I, I guess bare life is life that is barely life too. Mm, right. Right. And, and and at least you're yeah. having a fuller experience um if you are if you are taking some distance uh from this uh achievement society uh kind of mindset yeah yeah now since 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 you i think know some of this stuff really well in terms of you know even medieval thought and and maybe even you know certain types of christian mysticism i know that like in the catholic tradition when the concept of contemplation is talked about. It's usually in relationship to, you know, a divine being, you know, the Holy Trinity, whatever it might be. For for Chohan, do you have a sense of, of what contemplation is being referred to? Like, is there some type of divinity there or is it just communing with life? I mean, how, how do you think he thinks about that? Well, I think he... Um... I do think that he actually has some kind of background specifically in Catholic theology. I okay. could be wrong about that. I, I I read that he did, but I don't know much okay, about well, that. Okay, well, there you go. Then, then okay, then he definitely does. <laughs> or, well, or we're both getting... We're both wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but, okay. Uh, but um, even more directly, I think uh, he gets a lot of his uh, ideas about contemplation from uh, Martin Heidegger. Okay. The, uh, the who was a Catholic uh, philosopher, but the Catholic isn't sort of a decisive factor. Sure, um, he, that was more just his upbringing. And he, he he's um, so and he's the big philosopher of being. Mm. Who 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 would write a, a lengthy essay just on a pair of shoes or a mm. clod of dirt or a, you know some something that just is there and what it means for it to be there. So um, uh, that is is definitely, contemplation, I think, is a way of getting, uh, it's both a way of elevating yourself to something divine, mm. but more importantly, perhaps, it's, it's not trying to s project your head above the clouds to see God, as it were. It's more about finding how the divine has shaped everything down here in the world that seems so unremarkable at first glance. Got you. So I, I, I think so. The contemplation is really about rediscovering the sort of seeds of the divine, or 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 what's the the treasure that's been scattered in in the world, as opposed to having a mystic experience of self loss. Mm. That really resonates with me, and I, I I could see that sort of coming out in his book. Sure. 
Now, in in terms of just words and and your work in translation with you know the Burnout Society and you know any other book that you've done from him, are there any other kind of German words that are packed with with meaning? Like like when you just unpack the whole idea of boredom as you know uh, staying with. Yeah, I'm. I'm actually. I'm. I'm picking up a book right here just to see if if there's anything um, that that catches my eye because sure. there's. Uh, oh well, here's. Uh, so I was just talking about Heidegger, and here in uh, this book called "In the Swarm." Okay, which is, I, I just bought that. <laughs> okay, it's it's good too. They're all good. They're all good. But here's a fun sentence. And this is a quote from Heidegger, but this is the type of thing that that Byung-Chul Han does too. So he says, and he says, die Hand handelt. So the hand handles. Mm. And but handeln in German also means to act. So so the the hand ha- plays a role in shaping reality. Die Hand handelt. Mm. Like handlung is also the word for a plot in a play. Oh wow! Um, it's it, it's there, he'll, he'll so he'll start riffing on, and you can't do that kind of thing that well in English. No, you know because because it's I don't know it's like too much. Well, the whole history of the language's evolution is is obviously different from from German, um, but there are there are lots of times when he picks up on a word that just seems everyday like there what what could be a a more commonplace word than hand and um to act sure. the hand acts i mean that sounds so that you know the brain thinks the hand acts that that sounds like nothing but then by um exploring the etymology mm. and, and the uh, resonances of each word uh you know when the, the hand handles you start moving into another territory and and again that is also and then then something that doesn't sound intellectual at all winds up being actually very contemplative because the hand handling is handling the matter and finding the sort of the pearls and and uh jewels of of uh the divine that have been left behind here in the earth um that we just just in in the uh in the muck and mire that we normally just walk right by, right on by. Yeah. Um, so that, sorry, that was, that was one example. That is so good. Um, there's, 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 there's a lot of others though. Uh, um, it's just, uh, Oh, here's, he also does a great thing on modal verbs. Okay. Which is something that, probably doesn't mean much to most people uh except I can't say that it does maybe but, you could explain that <laughs> so modal <laughs> verbs are um v- verbs of uh necessity and obligation like would should mm. could ought uh, things like that sure so he he's got the here and actually in the burnout society now that i'm looking at it he um he 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 discusses the um but uh, elsewhere as well, as I recall, he uh, he talks about the the fact that these verbs are expressions of power and potential. They're not. It's not. It's it's all about trying to uh, circumscribe something that could have a force in the world, but doesn't yet, mm. and doesn't necessarily ever go into fulfillment. 
And um, this sort of, again, this relates, as I see it, to what I was talking about earlier about sort of peeling away a first level of, of, of appearances and, and finding something deeper in something very common. So just like boredom, long while, the hand handles, you know, well, I should do that. What does it really mean to say they should? Because that's that's this floating state right. that exists. It's 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 not something that is given that has happened yet. And where does this should come from? Is it a, is it is it a voice from within, or is it a, an imperative that comes from a higher source that's divine, for example, or is it a, another kind of exteriority like a social obligation? At any rate, he. Um, He's always uh, trying to bring the most commonplace and everyday aspects of reality into circulation and to show the sort of philosophical um, depth to 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 our everyday experience. Sure. And OK, so so building on that a little bit, you know, one of the things I think he distinguishes in the book, The Burnout Society, you know, in moving from Foucault's disciplinary society, there's maybe the modal verb, if I'm saying that right. Of, of should or must to in the achievement society, there's the modal verb, you can. Do, do, do you see that as a, as a big distinction, as an important distinction F from your well, perspective as a what, what I think What I think is important is how one contains the other, like the, the you can actually is a, is a sneaky way of saying you must mm. in the achievement society. It's like, because you can be more, you must be more. Mm. So in other words, you have to you have to be all that you can be in order to be yourself in the first place. It's, it would sort of be the irony of that. Got you. And, and I think he even mentions, but we're still caught in the illusion that in, in this achievement society mode, that because it's the can now, there's maybe a sense of freedom, but, but maybe it's not a sense of freedom. Maybe it's still the should and the must. Yeah, yeah, I, I think he would definitely say something to the effect of of how uh, one one verb winds up sort of stealthily taking the place of the other. Okay, because can definitely makes it sound like it's up to you and you have choice and agency and so on and so forth. But um, if at the same time uh, it's a matter of obligation that you do this, then uh, the can has a very different resonance and um, might better be translated by a different word altogether. Okay, great, yeah. Man, Eric, I, I know that I have to jump off in just a minute, but this has been tremendous. Uh, thank you so much for spending the time and talking about your own story and, and how you got into translating and then answering my questions about Chohan. I, I just really appreciate it. And, I'll include your website in the show notes and everything. And yeah, I, I, I usually like to ask the guests at the very end to just end with what's the line of the podcast uh, by just saying, continue the conversation. W would you mind saying that? No, no, by all means. Uh, get the book, read the book and continue the conversation. Absolutely. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the podcast, guys. I'd love to connect with you. Whether that means you sign up for therapy or you send me an email asking a question or maybe even explore what it would look like to get on the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. The best way to do that is to find me on my website at kikeautry.com. That's Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y.com. Or you can just Google me and there you'll find my Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter accounts. You can also go to the website of the practice I work at where I'm the Leeds Men's Counselor. That's katiecounselingformen.com. I hope that you guys are inspired by what we explore today. And as always, continue the conversation. Mm-hmm.